This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. This episode of the Oncogene Brief comes from Chicago, where we report from the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, which was held May 31st, June 4th, 2019. ASCO is the world's leading professional organization for physicians and oncology professionals caring for people with cancer. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Lee Schwarzberg, a medical oncologist and hematologist at West Cancer Center in Germantown, Tennessee. I also talk with Dr. Shannon Westin, Associate Professor Gynecological Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Let's listen. This week, the Oncogene Brief comes uh, from Chicago and the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. I'm here with Dr. Lee Schwartzberg. I mean, he is a medical oncologist and hematologist at West Cancer Center and his major research interests are therapeutic approaches to breast cancer, targeted therapies, and supportive care. Dr. Schwarzberg, welcome to the Youngest in Brief. Thank you very much for having me. Now, the last thing I mentioned was supportive care. Let's start with supportive care. Sure. And you talk about supportive care in chemotherapy. I mean, chemotherapy is still a mainstay in the development or in the treatment of patients with cancer, some forms of cancer. Right. If you talk about that, one of the often heard issues or problems is with what we call chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. That's a standard thing that you hear from a lot of people. Right. But there are a few new developments in that area. Um, and here at ASCO, there is some interesting research presented, and you're part of that. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. C- chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, or CINV, remains one of patients' greatest fears when they're starting chemotherapy. And we've made so much progress in the prevention of CINV over the last couple of decades that the fear, I think, is uh, is somewhat misappropriated for patients. I think that they, we have drugs now that can prevent nausea and vomiting in the large majority of patients, including those who are receiving highly emetogenic chemotherapy. And despite the many advances that we're all excited about, in non-chemotherapy agents, intravenous chemotherapy remains the mainstay of treatment for many cancers and will likely do so for the foreseeable future. So supportive care is so critical. Our goal in general is to try to have a patient have a chemotherapy experience with no toxicity. We're not there yet, but we've made remarkable strides in a variety of areas of supportive care, including CINV. When you talk about CINV, there are different forms of that. There are different intensities of that. So we uh, have a categorization of CINV into various categories, which has helped us to develop drugs. So we have highly emetogenic chemotherapy, which is defined as chemotherapy that in the pre-era of any drugs would virtually 100% cause vomiting and nausea. And of course, I'm old enough to remember the era where cisplatinum was Mm. a new drug with amazing properties but it was very difficult for patients to take it. They had to stay in the hospital a week because of the intractable nausea and vomiting. And I actually remember as a fellow treating patients with arguably the first solid tumor that could be cured, testicular cancer, young men who refused to come back for their second curative treatment because the toxicity of cisplatinum was so high. And so if you think about that, where we are today, 30 years later, 
It's not an issue anymore. We can control that. We give all chemotherapy outpatient now, and we don't do we don't keep people in the hospital for toxicity. So it, it's not unreasonable to say that the development of effective drugs was one of the most important things that's ever happened in cancer therapy. And ASCO recognized that when they looked at the 10 um, greatest advances, the development of anti-emesis drugs was one of them. Now, one of the presentations at this meeting is about that? Yes. So we're continuing to make progress. And what we're currently studying is a drug called NEPA. NEPA is a combination therapy. It contains a NK1 receptor antagonist, called natupatent and a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, the two major classes of anti-emesis prophylaxis, which targets the receptors that cause it in the brain and the, and the intestine. And uh, those have been formulated, both of these are very active compounds, and they've been formulated in an intravenous combination formulation as well as an oral formulation. The oral formulation came out as a capsule first, and then the IV formulation. What we did... At, and presenting at ASCO this year is a study looking at intravenous NEPA's safety and efficacy with patients that were receiving AC chemotherapy, adriamycin and cyclophosphamide, which remains a very common form of chemotherapy for women with breast cancer in particular. Now, as I said, it's one, it, it, there is a lot to talk about that. I mean, it's, it's one of the mainstays of what um, ASCO is also doing is to recognize the fact that there are a, issues and, and looking at ways how to develop that. When you look at, at chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, what is the future direction in, in that respect? If you look at, at the last 30 years you mentioned, right, there is a major development um, that people can actually be treated without uh, or with actually with benefits in that respect, that their care is, is, taking, is okay. They don't have to be fearing the, this, this problem. Right. Where do we go in the next 5, 10, maybe 30 years? So the interesting thing is that we now have the tools to prevent nausea and vomiting in the large majority of patients with the drugs we already have. However, they're not routinely being used, even in highly emetogenic chemotherapy. And I and others have done a number of studies of real-world evidence that have shown that not all the patients who should get these combinations are getting them. And one, and one of the reasons we did this study with NEPA, with the intravenous formulation, right. was to give flexibility and convenience in giving the, the uh, prophylaxis in highly emetogenic chemotherapy. So this is one infusion that's given, combination therapy, and the results showed that it was very safe, as safe as the oral form. Mm -hmm. There were no new safety signals. And importantly, what we see with some of the other intravenous uh, uh, NK1 receptor antagonists, which are available over the last few years, is infusion reactions we saw virtually no infusion reactions that were attributable to the NEPA formulation. So this is now proven in a variety of highly emetogenic chemotherapy and approved for use, and there's flexibility. So uh, the clinician can pick an all-oral regimen, if they like, with a capsule of NEPA plus dexamethasone, or an all-IV regimen, if they like, with intravenous dexamethasone and a single formulation of intravenous NEPA. And that is clearly an advance because what we need to do is deliver these effective drugs to patients. Now, you mentioned prophylactic. Yes. That means before the actual treatment or prevention of, of some expectations in that respect. Yes. So this is a critical point. These drugs work 
far better as prevention. Once a patient has nausea and vomiting, then you're playing catch up. And that's not the way, best way to treat patients. Despite that, many patients, particularly with a drug called carboplatin, where has recently been characterized as highly emetogenic and was previously thought to be in that moderately emetogenic range. The truth is carboplatinum is not that different from cisplatin. And what the guidelines, including NCCN guidelines and ASCO guidelines recommend now is to give a three-drug combination, 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, NK1 receptor antagonist, and a corticosteroid before carboplatin. In other presentations that we're seeing at ASCO this year, looking at the real world, it's shockingly low, even though those recommendations have now been out for about three years. There was a modest increase in using the most effective and uh, guideline-approved prophylaxis for carboplatin, yet the majority of patients are still not getting that. And that is, to be honest, a disservice to patients because they're having symptoms that could be largely avoided. Now, if you're an oncologist or an hematologist and you are somewhere in the country listening to this program, you don't necessarily know. It's like, oh, okay, well, I, I know how I would like to help my, my, my patient. I know that this particular drug regimen is actually designed to that. But, I mean, what do I do in the case of supportive care? How can I help them? What are some of the things, what are some of the resources that you might, might point to for them to, to look at that? One of the best things to do is incorporate your supportive care drugs into your pathways or your treatment regimens in an electronic medical record. And that is really pretty easy today because virtually everyone has moved to electronic medical records and electronic ordering sets. So one way to do that is involve the pharmacist at your institution early in the development of these order sets and to characterize each chemotherapy regimen into its category, whether it's highly emetogenic, moderately emetogenic, or mildly emetogenic, and then put the supportive drugs in there. Oncologists have so many things to worry about and remember these days. They don't have to necessarily remember this. And to be honest, they're not spending a lot of time on supportive care because it's been around now for a long time. Right. But what we can do is operationalize it and streamline it so that you don't have to think about it, but make the decision early on to characterize the chemotherapy into its, its likelihood of causing it and then use the appropriate drug regimen. And again, a triplet regimen is appropriate for highly emetogenic chemotherapy. Think about it, carboplatin and anthracycline containing regimens is still very, very common. So this is an issue that we really need to address. Let's take a break and then we're back with our interviews coming to you from the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, held earlier this year in Chicago. I'm Peter Hofland and this is the Oncogene Brief. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with a sun protection factor, or SPF, of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. UVA rays age the skin, UVB rays burn, and both cause cancer. But the perfect sunscreen doesn't count if you use it wrong. Don't need sunscreen on a cloudy day? Wrong. 80% of UV rays still get through the haze. Only use sunscreen at the beach? Nope. 
Anytime you're outside, UV rays attack the skin, so you need protection. And you have to reapply sunscreen every two hours. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Each day, researchers make discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Their progress is made possible with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. Now, on the other side, if you're a patient and you go for treatment, is there a role for the patient in that case? Yes, patients still come in resigned to the fact that they're going to throw up after chemotherapy. We have to disabuse them of that notion. Given the right prophylactic treatment, the large, in fact, emesis, vomiting is over 90% controlled with these appropriate drugs like NEPA. So the patient may ask their, their physician or their oncologist, is there something that you can do to help me with that? I'm, I'm afraid of this. Yes, they should be engaged in the conversation about all their side effects. Their patients are never more nervous than when they come in for their first chemotherapy. The fear of the unknown, I can tell you, for seeing this every day, is overwhelming. And the goal and the job of the oncologist is to deliver the information that will put them at ease in, in a realistic way. We're not going to prevent this or other toxicity for all patients, but when they hear that the likelihood of vomiting is virtually nil and the likelihood of, of severe symptomatic nausea is very modest and that we have additional drugs we can use when necessary, it puts them so much at ease and it makes that beginning of their chemotherapy and cancer journey so much easier. Okay. Thank you very much. Here at um, the annual meeting of this American Society of Clinical Oncology with Eric Rosenthal, um, our editor-at-large of Oncozine and the Oncozine Brief. We're talking a little bit about some of the uh, information that we uh, well heard in uh, the previous section of the program uh, from Lee Schwarzenberg uh, about uh, how to avoid uh, some of the side effects of uh, chemotherapy in cancer therapy and how important that is actually to work on those things. Eric, um, you listened to the interview. Yes. W what, what is your observation? I think Lee raised a very, very important point. And that was even though if, as you go through the ASCO meeting and you see all new types of emo immunotherapies and targeted therapies, and precision medicine, the chemotherapy is, is still part of the arsenal and it's still very valid and it still works. And so I think it's important uh, if you can mitigate some of the side effects of, of chemotherapy, such as nausea and, and vomiting, uh, and there are drugs to do that, that oncologists should be aware of it and, and integrate it into their practice. 
Uh, yeah, it is absolutely. Because I mean, sometimes when you work, walk around on these meetings, um, you hear the latest of the latest and the most exciting kind of presentations about we can do this and we can do that and the technology allows us to do this. And, but often we forget that medicine is not always moving so fast. And so one of the things that you hear here, I mean, preclinical data, uh, which not even being tried in, in people, you hear about phase one clinical trials where you look at safety, very, very small, maybe 10, 15, 20 people that are being tried on something who are really, really sick. Um, but people often forget the long time it takes to get the information that we get here into the clinic. Again, a lot of the news that comes out of this meeting and other medical and scientific meetings is near future or future uh, practice. And again, you know, you've got pa- these oncologists are going to go back. If they have patients today, they're being treated with conventional drugs that are out there. And if there are ways of making those drugs uh, less toxic, less less uh, uncomfortable for the patient, they should be aware of it. And I think there's been a lot of resistance in oncology to palliative care concepts, to concepts of 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 uh, what cancers. Um, to um, cancer supportive therapies right. and other things. And I think it's just, it just should be part of the mentality of oncology that if you have things to, to use them to the best use for the patient, and again, if you can avoid or mitigate side effects, to do so. Yeah, and, and if you look at, at the, the traditional term of what people actually, the understanding of palliative care is often um, is end-of-life care, uh, but often it is not the right thing to think that. It is actually making sure that people are comfortable and whether that has to do with pain, whether it has to do with some of the really tr- horrendous side effects of some chemotherapy, not all chemotherapies. Uh, and, and one of the interesting things that, that uh, Lee was actually talking about was the fact that the way they used right now some of the, 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 the drugs that actually help avoid some of the things is it takes away the fear of for people to be treated. And I think that is really important. Yes, I think he made the point that some patients come in and they're more afraid of the side effects than they are of the cancer itself. And again, if in fact they would, could be the, the patient as well as the oncologist would, the oncologist and, and his team would make the patient aware that there are things that can mitigate those side effects and, and uh, it would be something that you know, would be beneficial and, and also give great peace of mind. You know, a lot of people still go back to the old, you know, the old thoughts that cancer is, is a death sentence or that it's debilitating to go through the therapy and, and the therapy is worse than the cancer itself. And the fact is there's been so much done in support of oncology over the years. It's, it still amazes me, uh, again, talking about palliative care. I've been covering palliative care for more than 25 years. And I think by now that oncologists and the public would know there's a difference between palliative care and hospice, and many people don't. They're still, you know, frightening buzzwords. Also, I remember there was a, a couple of years ago, they um, started initiating more palliative care at end of life. And I always said to um, people I would speak with that why doesn't that, it, it should be, it should be palliative care at any point in time, anything you can do to mitigate, again, or make the comp- side effects or make a patient more comfortable should be implemented as soon as possible. Right. And, and that is actually the, the, what, what you get when you listen to Lee Schwarzenberg. It means the fact that, yeah, I mean, we can do a lot of things in the treatment, um, but if you don't make the patient comfortable, if you don't make it easy for a patient to actually receive treatment, uh, it to, to, may not help. Well, my frustration as a journalist, I've been following this and looking at this for more than a quarter of a century, and the fact that in 2019, 
Lee Schwartzberg has to make the case for it because the case hasn't been made yet. I think it's pretty sad. I think it's I think it's I don't know to what extent it's integrated into the educational courses in ASCO, but it's certainly something that should be thought of starting in medical school in terms of changing the mentality of how we deal with cancer. And that that is to the benefit of the patients. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you very much. We are um, at the annual meeting of the American Society of Oncology. Here with me is Shannon Weston, and she is an associate professor of gynecological oncology and reproductive medicine. Now, before we're going to talk about uh, a poster that she presented, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, all the excitement that uh, makes uh, ASCO. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So ASCO started a couple of days ago. What were some of the things that you were expecting, some of the interesting things that uh, really are maybe practice changing for oncologists or even good news for patients? What are some of the things that really excite you? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, ASCO every year, it's like drinking from a fire hose, trying to get a hold of all the data and all of the different things that are being presented. I mean, I think from the gynecologic cancer standpoint, there were some things that weren't surprising, but were nice to see. Um, You know, we, over the last few years, have seen PARP inhibitors have really been the hot commodity and the hot topic. PARP inhibitors being? For the treatment of ovarian cancer. So these are agents that are now FDA approved in uh, multiple different lines of therapy for ovarian cancer and have become, um, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of a backboard, you know, for all the future studies. And so what we're seeing here are confirmatory studies um, such as Solo3 and Clio um, that basically are showing that Elaparib does perform better than chemotherapy in this setting um, and basically supporting what we're already doing in these patients. But, so you're you know, talking about biological drugs that's in that right. respect? That's right. These are drugs that um, act on DNA repair pathways and are especially active in ovarian cancer that have um, BRCA mutations. But we've even seen activity across a number of different patients without targets, too. So it's been a game changer, really, in ovarian cancer in that, you know, we're seeing responses outwards of 30%, which we have just not seen that for even, you know, for any chemotherapy drug. So that's been quite exciting. And certainly it's very nice to see that those data confirmed. Right. We're also seeing a lot of combinations now, combinations with PARP inhibitors, combinations with anti-angiogenic drugs, which are drugs that target the development of novel uh, blood vessels that support cancer. And in fact, tomorrow, Dr. Mirza will present his data looking at the combination of bevacizumab with niraparib. Now, bevacizumab is an anti-angiogenic and niraparib is a PARP inhibitor. So we're, combination. T- so we're taking these drugs we know are good on their own and we're combining them together. And, you know, I think we're seeing what we expect, which are better responses, improved progression-free survival, and then also reasonable levels of toxicity. So it's tolerable to add those drugs together and potentially can offer a great benefit. Right. So that's the excitement uh, that's being mm-hmm. presented at ASCO. Yeah. And I think there is about uh, more than 30,000 oncologists and hematologists, I mean, Absolutely. gathering here today or this weekend, actually. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> quite, quite busy here today. Yes, it definitely is. Uh, Let's take a quick break and then we're back with more. Some of the best sounds you'll ever hear are generic, safe, effective, even money-saving, just like FDA-approved generic drugs. 
Even if they don't come in the exact same color or shape as their brand name equivalents, they have the same key ingredients and go through a rigorous review process. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist today and visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. Generics are safe, effective, and can save you money. You'll like the sound of that. You listen when your body says, I'm tired or I'm hungry. Are you listening? Would you listen if your body said, I have pain and pressure in my abdomen. I feel bloated for no good reason. Or I get too full too fast. I'm spotting, but I've already gone through menopause. Or I have to go to the bathroom more often and more urgently than usual. These can be signs of a gynecologic cancer, like cervical, ovarian, uterine, vaginal, and vulvar cancers. Symptoms aren't the same for everyone. If your body says something may be wrong, please listen, learn the symptoms, and get the inside knowledge about gynecologic cancers. Call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Inside Knowledge Campaign and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. If you're just joining us, this week the Angusine Brief comes from Chicago, where we spent a long weekend during the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology to talk to experts and digest the latest information in the development of new cancer treatments and advances made in the treatment of patients with cancer. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. When you look at uh, a poster that a poster, I assume, right, mm-hmm. that you were presenting, tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, we um, tried to put together some information about a very important clinical problem in ovarian cancer, which is when should you use bevacizumab, right? So we know this drug is active. It's been shown to be active in the upfront setting in the recurrent setting as maintenance, and also the recurrent setting as treatment. Um, So we specifically looked at the recurrent setting as treatment to see if we had patients that got bevacizumab in combination with chemotherapy, had some benefit, but then ultimately started progressing, could we continue the bevacizumab and actually switch the chemotherapy partner? And what we found is actually, if you continue the bevacizumab through several chemotherapy partners, You have improved progression-free survival and improved overall survival. So that's incredible for us. It was a retrospective study, so you always have to be cautious with that. But it was a large study, and it demonstrated that you can kind of go back to the well and continue to uh, treat with bevacizumab. We've seen similar results in colorectal cancer, so it was very nice to confirm. It is in multiple cancers where you can Mm -hmm. see the same results. Absolutely. Now, if you... you, um are uh, an oncologist and, and you have not been able to uh, see some of the stuff that um, um, is presented here mm-hmm. or, well, you had not, you, you were not able to come, yeah. come to UNESCO. I mean, there are unfortunately situations that that happens. Where can you find more information, uh, very specific, and what are some of the sources or resources that you would like, like to make sure that oncologists have? Yeah. You know, I think the ASCO website is a great place to start. You can access a lot of the annual meeting materials there um, and even uh, get additional access with with fees. <laughs> um, yes. But, you know, there are different 
the ASCO post, there are um, other, you know, websites that basically are kind of constantly posting all of the different findings. You know, the Journal of Clinical Oncology is a great source. So you really can get a, a great sense of what's going on. I am a big Twitter user. So if you, you know, follow that hashtag ASCO19, that's a great place to kind of see what the experts are talking about. And, you know, you can get great short summaries of the data that are being presented. Right. Now, from a patient perspective, mm-hmm. um, you are uh, treating gynecological uh, cancers. Mm-hmm. And gynecological cancers are often very difficult to, to treat. I mean, we we're talking about some of the technical aspects, some of the ways that certain drugs may help. One of the things that I've been told in many cases is that women don't recognize the mm-hmm. fact that they may have uh, cancer yeah. um, until it's too late. And so if you are a patient and you hear this news and you hear the fact, well, there is fantastic ways to treat this right now. And you may have a stomach ache. Mm. What are you telling, telling a patient? Yeah, I mean, I think, especially for ovarian cancer, we have often heard it called the silent killer, right? right? Because people don't know they have it. But in fact, it's not the silent killer. It's just there are symptoms, but it's easy to blow off. They're not very specific symptoms. There's symptoms like abdominal pain or a little bit of nausea, queasiness bloating. It's very easy to blow those types of symptoms off or think it's related to your diet, stop gluten or, you know, Mm -hmm. stop drinking milk, you know. So it's very easy to not consider that as a potential for cancer. So what I tell patients is if you have any of these kind of nonspecific symptoms, gastrointestinally related, you know, abdominal pain, nausea, bloating, just go see your doctor. If they persist for more than two weeks, you should see somebody. And it's so easy. An ultrasound, a CA-125 level, which is a blood test, those are very simple things that can be done. And if they're negative, then you can go about your dietary changes or whatever. But but definitely um, making sure that you don't ignore those, you know, subtle symptoms. Right. I think that is a very important kind of uh, direction. Mm -hmm. Now, on the oncologist side or on the doctor side, right? I mean, we, we are here talking with oncologists. You're an oncologist. But if you are a general physician in in a clinic and and you have a patient that comes to you and says, well, I've heard this radio program about cancer and the whole story about that. And what are you telling a a, a GP in in, in the clinic that may come with, see a patient and and with this overwhelming amount of information that comes their, their way? How can they shift through that? Yeah. I, you know, I think it's always very difficult to try to, to do that. But I think from the GP standpoint is just knowing the differential and keeping cancer in your mind as a part of the differential. I think a lot of times we see patients that have gone through these extensive gastrointestinal workups, colonoscopies and the like, but never had just a basic pelvic exam. You know, something so simple that if it's abnormal, we could, you know, we could move on it quicker. So I think, you know, just making sure that cancer is always kind of in the back of their mind, um, even though, you know, the the non-cancer diagnoses are certainly more common. Today, I mean, I mean, again, there are an awful lot of uh, very exciting presentations about uh, treatment, treatment options uh, that are there. A combination therapies. One of the things that we are, um, uh, bef- in, 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 a little bit before we started the, the program, uh, we're talking a little bit about where the combination therapy or actually a different kind of therapy called antibody drug conjugates. They are not chemotherapy. Uh, they may have a chemotherapy payload or component, uh, but they're very, very specific, very directed uh, to, um, uh, to, to the treatment options that are out there. Tell me a little bit about the direction that we are going with uh, cancer treatment, treatment because these drugs are specifically for, for cancer treatment and the possible benefit of less side effects. 
for example? Yeah, I mean, I think these drug um, these drug conjugates are so exciting because you can give such a high dose of chemotherapy. As you mentioned, that's often the payload, um, but bring it into the cancer cell itself. And so we see the side effects we see are actually more related to the uh, compound as far as the linker and and um, how it's developed, but it's not related to the traditional chemotherapy side effects. That like we don't see issues with counts, you know, blood count issues, anemia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia. We don't see as many gastrointestinal side effects. What we do see, though, are kind of more unique side effects like significant edema, especially facial edema mm-hmm. that can happen. Um, so they're not without side effects, but they're, they're just a, a, a different brand of side effects. The other thing I think that's really cool about these is that if you've got the right target, you can really see... And you talk in, about the target that actually is the, on the cancer That's cell. right. It basically, it, it can, you have to have something that the, the drug can recognize on the cancer cell. And if you, got, if you have an appropriate target for your cancer type, then you can see a really impressive result. So for us in the gynecologic malignancy area, we've seen um, really nice results with a drug called tisutumab vendoitin, which is um, targeted against tissue factor. And we see tissue factor expression very highly in cervical cancer. And you know, cervical cancer is a huge unmet need. When patients recur, recur or progress through primary therapy, really, we don't have great options for them. Um, and in the uh, phase one study, they demonstrated, you know, somewhere around 40% response rate, which is incredible. And so now we're seeing a lot of development around that drug, both alone and in combination with checkpoint inhibitors and, and those types of things. On the ovarian cancer side, a drug that targets folate receptor alpha, which is called mervatuxine, mervatuximab has been really exciting. Um, we're seeing it in combination now with chemotherapies as well as other novel targeted mm-hmm. therapies. And so it'll be very interesting to see um, where that goes next. So that's on the, the novel side of, of treatment options. Let's take a quick break and then we're back with more. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov slash sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Each day, researchers make discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Their progress is made possible with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. You listen when your body says, I'm tired, or I'm hungry. What if your body said something else might be wrong? Gynecologic cancers, cervical, ovarian, and uterine cancers have symptoms, so pay attention. If your body says something may be wrong, please listen. Learn the symptoms. Get the inside knowledge about gynecologic cancers. A message from HHS and CDC's Inside Knowledge Campaign. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. 
If you're just joining us, this week the Engazine Brief comes from Chicago, where we spent a long weekend during the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology to talk to experts and digest the latest information in the development of new cancer treatments and advances made in the treatment of patients with cancer. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Engazine Brief. Now, you said phase one. Uh, phase one is making sure that uh, drugs are tested to be non-toxic or actually can be used in, in, in humans in that respect. Uh, how long do you think it takes before a drug like that can be on the market? It depends. You know, we in the, the traditional developmental therapeutics kind of pathway, it would take another, you know, four to five years before a drug like that got to market. But what we are seeing now are larger phase one studies where academics and industry partners are trying to see a signal earlier. And so if you see an impressive response or impressive efficacy in a phase one trial, we're seeing the FDA has been accepting of at times of getting that drug to market even quicker, you know, so they'll do these breakthrough designations mm -hmm. where, yep. you know, with, if the data are impressive enough, they will give that drug an indication, but then the company is required to follow up and confirm with the study. So I think that's an, a really awesome thing for patients is to be able to potentially access these drugs earlier with the appropriate caution, you know, and, and, and the confirmation and validation that, that those data are actually correct. And, and that's often done at a, um, uh, you're, you're with MD Anderson, that's so right. that's often done with uh, larger institutions, academic institutions, yeah. where oncologists um, can actually work with those kind of clinical trials. Absolutely. Although I will say that um, we've got a, a great network of community partners. And so there there's groups through um, many of the cooperative groups where the community oncologists can also open these types of trials. And so we're really trying to get these trials out to where patients are seen in the community so that they don't have to kind of bring into the, the big medical centers, deal with traffic and parking. And so, right. you know, I think the that's really been a huge opportunity for patients over the last, you know, 10 years, really providing those types of clinical trials out in the community as well. Now, another thing when you talk about uh, uh, phase one clinical trials, a term that you hear often here when you are at ASCO is real-world data. Uh -huh. Of course, clinical trials are often in smaller groups of people. I mean, we're talking about maybe tens to hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. What does it mean when you talk about real-world data in that respect? Yeah, there's well, there's a couple of, of places there where we're seeing the, a growing number of databases that basically pull from the medical records of, you know, oncologists across the community. Um, and you can really look and see, okay, how are these drugs being utilized? And what are the outcomes? And so there's often a, a consideration around generalizability of clinical trials because it's a very strict structure, right? You've got mm -hmm. very select patients that meet very strict criteria. And does that really um, matter when we, you know, get out in the community and maybe patients are a little bit sicker, a little bit older, you know, or don't have the perfect laboratory values. And so I think that is why we are very excited to see those data in those databases and confirm that what we found in a clinical trial actually is what's happening in real life. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to talk with you. Thanks. Today in the Ongazine Brief, we discussed two different aspects of the treatment of cancer palliative and supportive care in the treatment of gynecological cancers. Our interview with Dr. Lee Schwarzberg confirmed the importance of palliative care and supportive care in the treatment of patients with cancer. 
In essence, palliative care is focused on improving the quality of life for people living with a serious illness like cancer. People with cancer may receive palliative care at any time from the point of diagnosis, throughout treatment and beyond. This kind of care helps patients and caregivers manage the symptoms of cancer and the side effects of treatment. Palliative care is appropriate for people of any age and at any stage of the disease and should be used whenever the person has symptoms that need to be controlled. While it does not treat the cancer itself, palliative care is recommended as a standard part of care given to people with cancer. Palliative care looks at how the cancer experience is affecting the whole person by helping to relieve symptoms, pain and stress. Palliative care is about making sure that all care needs of a patient are addressed. And as such, palliative care has long been recognized as an important part of cancer care and treatment. In the second part of the program, I spoke with Dr. Shannon Westin about the progress made in the treatment of gynecological cancers. Gynecological cancers are cancers that start in a woman's reproductive organs. Each form of gynecological cancer is unique with different signs and symptoms, different risk factors or the things that may increase the chance of getting a disease and different prevention strategies. All women are at risk for gynecological cancer and this risk increases with age. However, when gynecological cancers are found early, treatment is most effective. But the diagnosis is often difficult. In America, Every six minutes, a woman is diagnosed with a gynecological cancer. And according to the American Cancer Society, this year alone, an estimated 92,000 women will be diagnosed with a gynecological cancer in the United States. Sadly, this will also result in the predicted 28,000 women being killed by various forms of this group of cancers. Some of these gynecological cancers have been called silent killers because women are often unaware of the signs and symptoms associated with these cancers and do not catch them until it's too late. We are at the end of this special edition of the Oncogen Brief, recorded during the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. For more information, symptoms and treatment options, as well as clinical trials, drug development, and how new anti-cancer agents are benefiting patients, visit the website of the American Society of Clinical Oncology at www.asco.org. Here you can find more doctor-approved information. The Oncogen Brief is made possible by the generous support of listeners of this station, and we want to thank you for this support. Your support made it possible that the Oncogen Brief is heard via iHeartRadio, PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. Your support also makes it possible that you can download the Oncogen Brief via iTunes and can listen to the program via Spotify and other streaming media. In Arizona, you can listen to the Oncogen Brief via Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about this, check out our online journal Oncogen at www.oncogen.com. If you want to support our program, please visit our website, Oncozine, and look for the Oncozine Brief. Here you can find more information about the way you can help us. And your support for this program is important. It allows us to bring you interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new treatments. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866 and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology.
Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffman, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.